menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dressed Media. eight billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, I have to say, April, this is a first for us because we are recording live in Paris. Yes, this is, we've actually recorded live a few times, but this is our first international live recording. So um, everyone in the audience, you want to give a little cheer and say hello? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because of course we are on our dress fashion history tour of Paris and we have so many of our beloved listeners here with us. And this is such a special treat to be joined here by you all. And of course, by today's guest, Nadia Albertini. Welcome to Dressed. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and it's a joy to have you all here in Paris today. Yes. Yeah, and just listeners, if Nadia's name and voice sounds familiar, it's because she has already joined us on the show back in 2019 for a two-part episode on the history of embroidery. And Nadia, I would love if you would maybe reintroduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up in Paris and what you do here. Thank you. Um, So yes, my name is Nadia Albertini. Um, I'm French and Mexican. I grew up in Mexico and I came to France when I was 18 uh, to study fashion and textiles uh, with a major focus on embroidery. Um, And nowadays, uh, well, I've been working for fashion for the past 16 years as an embroidery designer uh, for haute couture and ready to wear um, luxury uh, fashion, accessories, uh, handbags. Um, and a little bit of uh, interiors as well. 
And you can also add author to that list, yes. <laughs> of course, um, because Nadia is the author of the book Rebe Haute Couture Embroideries, which is the subject of our live podcast today. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you more about this, Nadia, because I happen to know that this project took a ton of detective work on your part. Um, I recall receiving a few emails from you asking a little bit questions about if we had any Rebe yes. content in Long our, ago. <laughs> our archive. Yes, it's a years ago. Um, but I'm hoping that you could tell us a little bit about how you came to this Rebe project, because the story is, is, is a fascinating one in and of itself. Um, so I was working in New York uh, for a big fashion company and like doing something that I wasn't really familiar with is like making 5,000 of this dress or 3,000 of that one. When I come from an haute couture background where, I, where we make like maybe one piece or when I was working for Dries Van Otten, we would make maybe a hundred pieces for production. It was like always really small. And so I was missing the ambience of the ateliers, of the craftsmanship, the handmade kind of like thing, the, the whole techniques, right? And so I started writing articles for a Japanese magazine called Stichide uh, about the history of French embroidery. And uh, I had to write four uh, articles um, published um, throughout a year. And so I had a lot of time to do research, really. And for the last one, I was doing research and I suddenly came across an article in a very obscure sort of website of a French local newspaper saying the embroideries, the haute couture embroideries in the Tarn region. Le Tarn is a river that runs in the south of France. And I was like, uh, there's nothing there. It's like, there's absolutely nothing related to couture. But I delve into it and I started read, like reading about it. And apparently, so René Beguet, who founded Rebe, had given his archive to this museum. Mm. And I just suddenly decided to do a Paris, New York, New York, Toulouse flight over the weekend. I rented <laughs> a little car, drove there. It took me forever. And I finally made it. And I asked the museum if I could see the archives and the things that they had once. Because um, the article um, mentioned an exhibition that had taken place in 2000. And we're talking that I uh, we're talking about 2018 when I read about it. Um, so they're like, yeah, well, we have everything in boxes. We haven't like shown any of this since. And I was like, okay. And so all these beautiful things were crushed in boxes, folded, not like the proper because it's it's a very small and not like they don't have a lot of resources, financial resources to maintain it all in the most delicate way. And so as soon as the curator started pulling things out, I was like, that is a Roger Vivier shoe in the cover of that book. Uh, <laughs> that is a Dior dress from, like, I, I could just link the embroideries to pieces that I had seen in museums or books. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a real treasure. I'm happy I did it. <laughs> I have to go back to work on Monday, but that's fine. And so uh, he was, at, at first he was like, why are you flying from New York to just see this? And I was like, well, I think we need to make a book. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very, very nice to just lend me um, the, the pictures, the negative uh, of pictures that they had taken in the 80s of the archives. So I took it back with me. Um, I had it digitized in New York. They were like, they had a th like uh, 1,500 samples and I digitized them all. And for like a year and a half, I just keep, kept 
watching these images every night after work thousands and thousands of times and I memorized them and then I would go back to archives like yours and I'm like, okay, how can I pair things? Because um, when I visited the museum, they told me we don't have anything else. We just have the samples. And a year later, he's like, oh, we found some boxes. Can you come over? And so I crossed <laughs> the pond again. And they had like five to 10 quite large boxes with tons of images, pictures, letters, love letters of the owners, um, more samples, uh, sketches, books with the poncif. Poncif are the traces of the embroidery calque that we use to do the embroidery. So it's kind of like a, a memory of the things that they were designing daily. They had a date, they had a name, they had the fabric name, they had an order from Givenchy saying that I want this dress done like this, this, this. And I was like, okay, now I can start pairing things together and matching things. So it took me to go to the V&A, to the Met, to Galliera, to Les Arts Deco. I went like personally to every single fashion museum that I could think of, the Henry Ford, the Chicago collection, everywhere. Like I went to Sandy in Detroit. I went to LA. I went everywhere I could think of to see pieces and to make sure that I wasn't forgetting anything and that we could pair as many swatches I was seeing in the collections to actual real pieces like dresses wow. or coats or, or shoes. And suddenly I started learning about like Musée des Tussis de Lyon has more samples and the Barcelona Museum has some samples and Galliera has a 500 of them that they've never even opened the boxes of. And like it's only a treasure with more than 5,000 embroidery samples. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think it's like a fashion historian's dream, right? I mean, anyone's dream really to come across this treasure trove of really someone who had kind of fallen into obscurity, right? Not totally. a lot of people knew uh, who he was or about this incredibly prolific embroiderer. And along comes Nadia um, and creates, I think you've spent three years researching. Yes, they were a myth. Even for the embroidery houses today, the owners, the designers, everyone in fashion, even in the, the old couture sphere, spheres, the name Rebe was, oh yeah, he was kind of someone in the 50s, but it was like a total myth. No one knew how, when, why, where, nothing. Would you tell us a little bit about how, why, when, and where? Yes. How did René Beguet get his start? So um, he uh, started in 1907 by taking over an embroidery house called Vite that was funded in Paris in 1887. And he was the son of a um, um, lace designer and mm -hmm. uh, guipure designer. So he had it in, in his family to love textiles. And so he trained uh, with uh, Jean Paquin in London and then came back to this, this embroidery house in Paris. And he was one of the major actors of, of embroidery in the 20s in Paris working for uh, Poiré, Menbaucher, all the big, big names in the 20s and 30s. Um, and then, obviously, with the um, crisis in the end of the 20s, because uh, it hit us here a little bit later, it was really early 30s, they had to close the business, um, him and his wife. So it was René Beguet and André Beguet. They were a couple. And what's really beautiful about this whole history is not only the work they did, but it was it's actually a love story behind it. It was not just a random person doing it. It was a creative duo 
René was more about like the sketch and the 2D, um, really the, the, the technical aspect of things. And she was a milliner. She had trained as a milliner and she was also a model. And so she was the one giving the fantasy, the texture, the experimentation in terms of new techniques. And he was so trained, like theoretically trained in, in, the, embroidery, in the embroidery trade but she would bring uh, more freedom. And so she innovated so much, um, and that's why they created so many special things. So during the 19th century, it was fairly standard practice for like big fashion houses like Worth and Pacan, for instance, to have their own in-house embroidery departments. So how did independent embroidery houses like Renee's figure into the fashion system in the early 20th century? Yeah, Lanvin also had her own ateliers, and I think that was fascinating. But the thing is, outside suppliers had always been in the business. Um, Paris was really known for the variety and the richness in this supplier kind of field. And they were all located in the Sentier neighborhood. Um, well, and well, there's different um, jobs in this embroidery field. There's obviously the owner, René Beguet and his wife, the creators, but they also had what we call the placier. Un placier or une placière would be a former embroiderer or someone who knows the craft and who knows all the technicalities and who would take a little suitcase and go to the fashion houses and present the creations of the season. And Rebe used to make around 200 to 300 samples every season, wow. so twice a year to show for the couture. He was only doing couture embroidery, no ready-to-wear back in that time. Um, so about around 600 samples every year and they would very often go back, show the collections to the couturier, Dior, Balenciaga, Givenchy, Saint Laurent, because I found nine people actually who worked for Rebe, and it's thanks to them, to these eight women and the men, that I actually know about this whole story. I know the back of the story, because um, I found someone, again, on an obscure website, saying, oh, yeah, I worked for Rebe back in my, like, when I was 20. And I was like, okay. So I found her <laughs> name in the yellow pages. And I, there was, like, maybe five or six women called like her. I called them all. <laughs> like, hi, I'm calling from New York. I saw your, uh, your article. I would love to talk to you. Five of them just hung up on me. And then the six, she was like, yeah, that's me. And so I started recording her. I would call her on my phone, record her on the computer. I had like 60 hours of conversation with this uh, wonderful, wonderful people. And they told me how, they, how was their, like their daily lives and, at, at work. Uh, so La Placière would sell the projects, show the samples to, for example, Monsieur Dior, and Monsieur Dior would say, oh, I love this sample, but instead of having it with white embroidery, I wanted a black embroidery. And a lot of the things that would happen uh, very often is that Rebe was such a creative genius. They were making so many unique things and choosing the best fabrics, choosing the most beautiful materials, that actually the couturier would just pick the things as they were. And mm. so then they would attribute it to the, to the silhouettes or to the bodies or the designs that they had already created and prepare the pattern pieces uh, with all the tracing, the yarns is what we call thread tracing. 
and then send them as panels to embroider to the atelier. They would do the work. Sometimes they would be rushing and then like 20 ladies around just the front of a dress or a jacket. They would send them back to the couture atelier to be mounted and assembled. And off you go to the runway. Yes. And that's where the magic really happens. But of course, we don't have images with us today. Um, you'll have to uh, grab a copy of Nadia's book for that. But Nadia, I'm hoping that you can kind of maybe attempt to endeavor to describe for our audience what that magic of Rebe's designs was. Because, you know, what really, what really set him apart from some of these other embroidery design houses? What types of motifs was he using? And uh, especially early on in his career. Um, so there's different um, periods in Rebe. What I think it's his strength or their strength is that Rebe, René Begué was coming from a, already a design background. His father was drawing, and I found sketches uh, from the late 1800s, uh, 1900s, um, that his father had drawn and he had kept during his whole career, and that he was using as inspiration. So Rebe's strength is the historicism behind his drawings and sketches and his level of research and sophistication in, first of all, the drawing. Mm -hmm. He was someone who was super cultured. He loved to go to museums, see exhibitions. Uh, in his late 70s, he was going to these Vasarelli exhibitions and taking those sketches as inspirations for drawings for embroideries mm. that they made in the 60s. And he loved the 18th century. Dior loved him for that. The whole Baroque and Marie Antoinette and uh, this Frenchness uh, thing. And so he had that strength uh, that he was really, really using daily. And then she came from actually knowing how to work with materials. Mm. She had experienced it firsthand. Making hats is not easy. It's super demanding. The materials are hard. You have to really work with them. And so it's the marriage of these two things. Super rich drawings, super inspired, and then super lively 3D work. And so it's that twist it's a level of sophistication that I don't think I've seen anywhere else for that period. Mm -hmm. Well, listeners and live audience, we're going to take a brief break here for a word from our sponsors, but more with Nadia when we come back. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is 
frankly, amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, running an itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Ask Pro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. So Nadia, it seems like this partnership um, between Renee and his wife, Andre, was highly successful. Um, and I, I say that because by the 1930s, you note that the House of Rebe employed anywhere between 30 and 40 embroiderers. And it seems that they especially adored Madame Begay. Would you tell us a little bit about her relationship with her employees? Because as you say, they considered her an extraordinary woman. Um, yes, I think that they, the people that I spoke to for during those three years of research, because I really asked every single question I could think of, and they were so nice to share with me all their memories, because these women that I spoke uh, to were like between 80, their 80s and their 90s when, when we spoke, mm-hmm. and they used to be 20, they were 20, 25-year-old when they started working with them. So it was kind of like their first experience. And I think that in your first job, you learn so much and you kind of like observe this new field and and it's a discovery. Um, So I think that um, André Beguet came from um, kind of like, a, I think a worker, worker's background. Her parents were chefs 
in a, in a chateau in the countryside, but they weren't exactly rich. Mm-hmm. Um, so she came to Paris really young because she was passionate about textiles. Um, she was 15 years younger than her husband, and she had her own business before even meeting him. And they all went to, like, to get married, despite the difference, despite the fact that she, I, she didn't want to have kids. She wanted to do her work mostly, be creative. Um, I don't think she cared about like what would people say. You know, mm-hmm. she was a, had a lot of freedom, very creative, and I think that was also seen by her employees, because they all told me, if Madame Beguet, um hadn't passed away so early, so young the house would be famous even now because because of that age difference she died in 66 and she was 64 year year old i found this in the she she died at the american hospital of paris and when i called them i was trying to get her medical records like up there i went to have the medical records it's like oh sorry we threw them away like a year ago and i was like oh no <laughs> oh no so um but yeah, so she had cancer, uh, she died very, very quickly, and when she died, sh- he decided to close the business because she he knew that she he couldn't do it without her. Mm-hmm. So the ladies mentioned uh, the embroiders mentioned that she was extremely open to suggestions that she would be demanding but fair, um, quite lively, she was like she was. Uh, playful and and joyful and someone from the countryside, you know, someone who has experienced a very hard life and upbringing. And I think she was just so happy to be doing what she was doing. And her husband was different. He was Parisian, born and raised in Paris, a little bit more reserved, um, maybe more into the discipline and, and, and being structured and being respectful to tradition. She, she was a bit more open in that sense, younger as well. Uh, I mean, imagine she was 50 in the 50s, wearing those um, amazing dresses. Um, She was buying from Saint Laurent in her 60s. -hmm. She would go to the, I found records of her purchases in the Haute Couture Salon at Saint Laurent for his first and second collection. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So it sounds like she was really the heart of the business then. Yeah, yeah the, the heart of the atelier, I would mm-hmm. say. He was in the... And an important thing as well that we have to mention and how women's work has evolved in fashion. In the embroidery ateliers, the drawing and the sketching was always performed by men up until the 60s or 70s. She started changing that. And then the embroidery work, it's only done by women. Up till now, with all the places that I've worked with, I've never seen a man embroidering. Like even in front today. of the flame. even today. They can be sketching, drawing, preparing materials, but don't they don't embroider. And she tried to change things a little bit. And she would like, if needed, she would go and draw uh, herself and she would like sketch. An important thing that I think we need to mention is that all the swatches that Rebe made were always already giving the shape of the dress or the jacket or the top. They would suggest the silhouette and fill it with the embroidery that they imagined could work on that. Mm. So, for example, when you see a, a dress from Dior from 51, um, 
if you compare it to the sketch, to the, to the actual sample, the embroidery sample, the embroidery sample is already giving kind of like the movement and how the embroidery has to be placed. And if there's a, there's a belt and it's a golden belt, and then Dior really followed the inspiration that Rebe was giving. Same thing for Saint Laurent. Um, so they're more than just suppliers. For me, the main difference there is that they're not just supplying labor or a technique. They are creators, creators and creatives, creatives at their own, um, in their own kind, you know. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so we've learned about Renee and Andre, and we'd love to learn about a little bit more about the embroiderers themselves, which you've kind of spoken to a little bit. What was kind of like their day-to-day -day life like in the 20th century, and how did their careers progress as they mastered the art of embroidery over time? Um, so uh, the women that I spoke to, because they were like women embroidering, um, they said it was it was tough, and it's still very tough. Uh, it's a very physical um, sort of work. You start at 9 a.m., uh, then you have lunch, the break, uh, and then you keep embroidering up until like 6 or 7 p.m. So it's like really 12 hours embroidering wow. and sitting wow. in front of a frame all day. And... It was quite disciplined in a way, like no talking, uh, no breaks, focus on the work. It's, it's kind of like, for me, it's like a, a little bit of a convent sort of ambience. You know, it's very serious. Monsieur Beguet used to be very serious and he would like do rounds in the atelier and then ask people not to talk and not to just fo focus and work. Um, and one of them mentioned, and I was quite shocked by that, that... So you would enroll, like you would go out of school at 18, having trained in embroidery, and you would find a job the first day. Like, here's your job, there you go, you have your frame, start working. But from 18 to 21, because you were considered underage or not mature enough or not an adult, you would be paid, as a woman, 20% less of the normal rate. Oh, no. Huh. And I was like, because they show me their fiche de pay, like their yeah. um, payment. Um, pay stub. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, and I was like, why is it, what does it say minus 20% here? It's like, oh, yeah, well, I was underage. It's like, no, you were 18. But they were considered underage, and so only at 21 they would get the full rate. <laughs> and so, first of all, okay, they would start as assistants and then doing little things, preparing the, the materials. You know, in, in French embroidery and tambour beading, we have to thread the beads and the sequins first and then work it with the hook. So you would get all the sequins loose and then you have to thread them. Um, there's a lot of preparation work. Um, so little by little, you would train. You would either be a mounteuse, broderie main, someone who embroiders only with the needle, or Lunéville's, someone who embroiders only with the crochet de Lunéville. And back in the day, well, today, when you see uh, documentaries or Loïc Prigent filming behind the scenes, you will always see the person, the, this woman, embroidering with the hook, kind of like in a blind way. The beads come from underneath, and then you just see your, the surface of your fabric. That is Lunéville. And it's kind of like the way of... French embroidery, that's the way it's done. No, 
before it used to be just with a needle and it was considered more prestigious, more, more unique, more difficult, less, less quick. Lunéville was invented in 1880 just to be doing things faster and sell more. But the real way, the regal way, was with the needle. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, you've mentioned beads, you've mentioned sequins, so that brings up the topic of materials. And I know that there was a lot of innovation um, in, with what Rebe was doing. So what type of materials were they employing? So as we said, um, all kinds of threads, silk threads, cotton. There's a very nice anecdote. Uh, it was So I have to thank... Monsieur de Givenchy, who made this book possible and who told me also many, many stories. He was the last couturier who was alive and who had worked uh, with Rebe, who had commissioned things from Rebe. And when I went to him saying, I want to do this book, and I've been researching for three years, and I think we, <laughs> we, we owe this to uh, this couple to just bring them back to the lights and then to give them the credit they deserve, he said something very moving. He said... When I was a young designer and I just had opened my house, um, Rebe didn't have to come to work for me. He was already famous enough and had many, many super famous clients, and he didn't have to take care of me or help me, a youngster, without a penny in any way or form. And he did. He asked him, okay, what do you want? How can we help you? How can we work together? And... Um, there's this very famous dress made for Wallis Simpson, well, or that she chose, I don't know, um, that it's um, in the Maryland Society, S yes? Maryland Center Hi for History and Culture. Exactly, right. Yes. And so um, that dress is embroidered just with very simple cotton yarns mm -hmm. following uh, une singerie, uh, a monkey, monkey design. Mm -hmm. It's that's um, preserved in l'hôtel de Rouen et Soubise in the Marais. Mm -hmm. It's part of like the whole um, area with the Ar National Archives. Musée Carnavalet is not too far. And so Monsieur de Givenchy wanted those um, monkeys playing music instruments to, be, to decorate the dress. And he didn't have much money to pay for the embroidery. So they just chose the most simple thread work embroidery, no beading, uh, no fancy sequence, nothing too complicated. But in other examples, Rebe was using all sorts of beads, uh, shells, metal pieces, uh, crystals. They would take uh, seasonal trips to Austria to buy their own materials. They would like really go and explore. They were traveling all over Europe and all over um, the, the north of uh, Africa, looking for inspiration, they would buy, you know, today we have Instagram, we have Pinterest, we have Google. We search any image and it just comes out. Back in the day, they were buying tons of books from the 18th century, archives of fabrics and textiles. They would go on to hunting for inspiration and they were buying... Um, they have like we, in Paris. There, they has um, there were these bank images, where they would go and ask, well, ah, okay, I'm looking for Alhambra, or Spanish Moresque inspirations for my new season, my new work, and they would purchase those images. It was kind of like a Getty images sort yeah. of real bank. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and to translate those inspirations, 
um, he was also getting sequins made mm. um, to shape. He would create their own molds, their own um, wow. cutters, and they would get special um, special sequins made for them. They would also create um, new techniques by kind of like just twisting certain things or it was more about like not necessarily new materials, but how they would combine all things in a new way. Mm. Yeah. And you're, you're just going to have to get your hands on the book to see some of the details on these. It's truly breathtaking. I'm still caught up by the fact that you met Monsieur Givenchy. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he was adorable. <laughs> he was, uh, and his dog was even more adorable. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was one of the highlights of the research. <laughs> So as April mentioned, your book is sumptuously illustrated by dozens of the most incredibly jaw-dropping, beautiful images of haute couture embroidery by Rebay. So little being known about Rebay when you started, you scoured museum collections as you've talked about all over the world searching for examples, and surely you have a couple of favorite pieces. Would you be willing to share with us? I know that's like um, asking you to choose between your children, but... <laughs> um, I really like this technique that they kind of put together. And again, it's, the, it's a perfect example of what do you do with a very traditional material and use it in a new way. Um, it's a technique that we call la laminette collée. So laminette is a word we use in French to say metallic thread. Okay, and it can be a metallic thread or a metallic sort of blade, which is slightly larger. It can be up to 3mm, 4mm wide. Um, they would, they wanted to create texture and 3Dness and volume, but um, laminette is very fragile and it breaks all the time. And so if you put it through fabric multiple times, it's gonna, it's gonna end breaking. That creates, uh, well, it's wasting time, wasting material. So Madame Begay, because apparently she invented this technique, she just used glue the metal yarns and then glued them together to create kind of like a chunky cord, metallic cord effect that was still very flexible and that they could manipulate and mold into creating new shapes. And so that started like in the mid-50s, I think it was the first example that I found is 57... Uh, an embroidery that they made for Dior when Monsieur Saint Laurent was designing his first collection called Ambassade, that it's actually in the FIT collection. Mm -hmm. And the embroidery sample, the original embroidery sample that they used as inspiration, or like they showed Monsieur uh, Saint Laurent to create this dress, is in the Musée des Tissus de Lyon. And so you see there's a, like flowers and stems and, and the whole shape of it is created with this new material that never goes through the fabric. It's mm. couched onto the fabric wow. with another yarn. So it's, it's super sculptural, it's super 3D, but it's done... It's like, you know, you're going to go to Versailles tomorrow. You're going to see the walls. You're going to see... We have to take into consideration that Madame Beguet was born in a chateau. So she probably saw all these moldings in the walls and wanted to translate that into embroidery. I think she really made it possible... Um, taking a very simple material with a very simple um, kind of like transformation. And for me, that is innovation. Um, and that was in the mid-50s. Well, I'm curious, Nadia, because one thing that we haven't mentioned about your career is that you are also an archivist. 
So <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about your work at Aurel? And, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because of the context of like how deep your knowledge goes of the history of embroidery and how many embroidery samples you've looked at and also that you are an, an haute couture embroiderer yourself. And all of this is leading to, I'm, I'm curious about what you feel knowing all of that, that the legacy of Rebe is to embroidery today. Um, thank you. Thank you. It sounds like, uh, <laughs> uh, well, every time people ask me, what do you do? I was like, well, I do embroidery in every, in every single form that you can imagine. Um, I love history. And um, it was fascinating because I first met Monsieur Urel when I was an assistant of the assistant of the assistant at Chloe. It was my first job. And I was we were invited to go to his archive to do research for the next season, right? And it was, I think it was uh, Phoebe's last season. And she was no longer there, but his, her team was there. And I was part of it. And so we were invited to do research there. And I just love tidying things. I was like, I love organizing and I love putting things into boxes and everything is clean and nicely put. And he noticed that, and he pointed at me. He's like, you're coming to work with me, and you're going to take care of my archives. I was 22. And I'm like, oh, uh, am I? Okay, great. <laughs> well, bye-bye. We need to go. We need to go back to the studio. But I just kept it in my mind. And so I've known him since I was 22. I'm 38 uh, now. And four years ago, he called me. He's like, okay, now it's time for you to come and help me with my archives. And I was like, okay. Because he saw what I had done with the book and all the research, and he was like, okay, you have, to, you have another two, 10 books to write on the Urel history. Like, okay. Um, and so Urel is a fascinating house. It's the oldest embroidery house in the world, or oldest haute couture embroidery house in the world, because he was, he, it was created in 1870s, 1875, actually. And it's still family-owned, fifth generation, has never been sold, and it's always passed, like, the cousin or the nephew, and then this, and the brother or the father, and the blah, blah, blah. So it's fifth generation. And um, they have been very good at preserving their history. Every single embroidery is labeled. They have 45,000 embroidery sample. Uh, samples and they they keep making embroideries every single day, designing new things every single day. So it's a constant uh, creation of archive. Uh, sometimes they do reinterpretations of their embroidery pieces. Sometimes it's new creations. Sometimes it's what we call une création orientée, which means that the designer gives a theme and you create within that frame. Um, and so I kind of like came up with a system to uh, just catalog them, classify them, to know how, how many of them they had. They have a massive basement. So the first year I worked there, I spent all my time in the basement um, <laughs> cleaning boxes. And I, I cleaned two rooms that like looked like a, bo a bomb had exploded in there. And then it was like all beautiful and tidy. So if you have like basements to tidy, just call me and then I'll help. Um, and I was like looking at wonders every single minute and for like months and months and months. And so we came up with this system. And the thing is, every single period has a different style. 
uh, a different language, different materials, different trends. You see, for example, the paisley motifs between 1880 and early 1900s, paisley everywhere. In embroidery, in or like a woven paisley re-embroidered. Um, trends in the, even the 80s, oh my God, there's some like really ugly things, but like really interesting <laughs> in the way they were like doing so many volumes and then twisted sequins and curled sequins like they would burn. Um, so for me, it's kind of like a, I have a, a visual memory. It's like, I, it's like having Google images in my brain all the time. And I'm like, oh my God, where have I seen that? And then um, I feel like Rebe holds a special place in there because of the, of the innovation that they really created. And because it's the, what I mentioned before, the marriage, the perfect marriage between the most sophisticated drawings and the most innovative way of using traditional materials. Um, and I think they were very demanding. They were perfectionists. Um, the care that they took of every single little thing um, is... And for me, Rebe is an embroidery that is layered. A first layer of something very simple. And on top, you put something else. And then on top, again, something else, but in a subtle way. Never heavy, super light, um, but again, for example, there's many other embroidery houses that have been forgotten. Lanel, Mesrin, um, Bataille. Bataille was embroidering for Balenciaga, but they were also embroidering for Chanel in the 20s. Um, there's so many, so many names. And so many books to be written. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is on Chanel, and it's coming out in October, so I'll tell you more later. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Nadia, thank you so much for being here. We cannot let you go without you telling our listeners where they can find more about your work. We also happen to know that you do textile and embroidery tours in Paris. So can you please share a little bit about where our listeners can find you? Um, mainly on Instagram, because um, in this 16 years, I've never had a professional website because I don't have time to make it. <laughs> uh, but you can follow me and, and message me on Instagram and I'll always reply. I'll be more than happy to do so. Uh, and yes, I have, because it came from the book. A lot of people were buying the book and for now it's only in French. If, if any um, English publisher wants to publish it in English, I'm super happy to do that. Um, and the thing is, a lot of people are asking me, oh, how can we learn more? We want to practice this or like we want to learn from you. And I said, OK, well, I'm going to create um, kind of like a, an experience um, about the history of Rebe, creative practices, do your own design based on their processes and the design method and get to make your own embroideries based on that whole learning. Mm -hmm. And so it's a 10 day uh, trip. Uh, that we have scheduled for November. And um, besides that, I just recently did a very, very cute little trip with Salvage magazine, uh, just six people, and I took them around Paris for seven days. And it was really based on fabrics, weaving, uh, antique fabrics, uh, embroidery, really the base of, of fabric in France. Yes. And what is your Instagram handle? 
Nadia underscore embroidery. <laughs> Nadia, thank you so much for joining us again. And we're not going to say goodbye because we know you're going to be back. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. And I hope that um, everyone enjoys Paris. There's a lot to see and you have the best guides and the best hosts. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, of course, to our in-person guests today on our Dress Fashion History Tour of Paris. <laughs> well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of embroidery in your closet next time you get dressed. Well, dress listeners, you know where you can find us at dressed underscore podcast on Instagram, where we always post Im- images and reels to accompany each week's episode. And you can always email us as well at hello at dressedhistory.com, which also happens to be our new website, www.dressedhistory.com. And more dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. Mm-hmm.